Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardwar. Our regular co-host, Sherlyn Lowe, is off for vacation this week, so be sure to send her well wishes. This week, we'll be diving into the analog pocket with James True. And also, Dan Cooper will be joining me to talk about news and other fun stuff. As always, if you're enjoying the Engadget podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. That's always super helpful. And you can drop us an email at podcastengadget.com. We typically do a live stream Thursdays around 10 a.m. Eastern, so join us for that. Uh, you know, we do Q&As. We have fun times with the chat. Uh, just heads up, uh, we won't be doing one or an episode uh, during the week of Christmas, but we will have something right before New Year's to preview CES. Let's move on to our first segment, which is all about the analog pocket. And joining me to talk about that is our editor-at-large, James True. Hey, James, how's it going? How's it going, Devendra? Thanks for having me on. I'm pretty excited to talk about this. So, um, yeah, good to be here. I know. I, I know you're excited because I also know you're our resident, like, retro-portable gaming nerd. Like, you were you were just all up in there. You're always up with your... Um, is it Lynx is what you're... So Lynx is... That's the thing I went all in on. Um, I did my I, I did 15-year-old Mia Solid, and then one, once I earned an, an, enough money, I just bought the entire thing. I barely play it, but but I own it. So, so I remember... I see, I see, like, you occasionally showing off your carts and everything, and I just think, like, man, I remember hearing about the Lynx in the early 90s. Uh, it seemed fine, but I also... It also made me think, like, this guy just loves his portable gaming. Um... Let's talk about the analog pocket. What is this thing and what makes it so different from all the other like retro portable gaming systems we've been seeing? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because I think what a lot of people don't realize, I mean, you see a lot of these sort of retro gaming machines and the most typical thing when you get like a handheld is either going to be some sort of retro pie in a case or... It's going to be one of these sort of, if you go on Amazon and you just search for retro gaming handheld, you're going to get a bunch um, come up. Like there's brands like Anne Bernick, uh, which are, uh, no one's ever heard of, but they're kind of a, one of the bigger names in this space. And they, they just kind of do mm-hmm. this. They're all software emulation, right? So um, you've got uh, the RetroPie, um, uh, RetroArc, and all the libretto stuff. And they just put all those together. And then you sort of play the games through that, right? This, what this does is they're very different. It's called FPGA, which is Field Programming Gate Arrays. Um, I always Arrays, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's basically, mm-hmm. as I understand it, it's, uh, it's basically a chip that you can configure to represent or present itself as old or other systems, if that makes sense. 
So it can reconfigure itself. You get these things called cores, and you load the core into it, and it suddenly it's this machine, and then you can load another core, and it's, suddenly it's that machine. But what that means is it presents itself to the game, and this is the important thing here, is the physical cartridge that you do need to put into the thing. And the, for all the cartridge knows, is, is it's inside an original Game Boy. Or, or sure, it has no clue like what it's plugged into. Yeah, Right, but the key difference there is that you do have to play with uh, original games. So you need the physical cartridge to, to play it. So for a lot of people, that's a bit of a turn off, I think, because you kind of, you need, uh, you either need to already have the games like I do, or um, head down to your local retro store and you're going to spend a bunch of cash because retro games are, have sort of reached a stable price, but they're not cheap. Yeah. Um, so that that's in a nutshell, that's what it is. It's basically the most authentic way to play uh, retro games, retro handheld games, um, in, in a portable that you can uh, that you can do right now. So it's as if a Game Boy was made in twenty twenty one. I kind of love it. Like I, I love. So I've pre ordered one. I don't think I'm going to be playing many of these games. And also, I have this thing about like especially eight bit games. Like I was there, guys. Okay, most of those NES games, especially most of the Game Boy games. They weren't good. I don't want to play them again. But there were certain experiences that I would totally be down for, especially like uh, Game Boy Advance titles, uh, something like uh, Final Fantasy Tactics um, Advance. It has not been re-released in a good way, I think. So this would be the only good way to play it. And to quickly like just hone in on the FPGA thing, we've been hearing about FPGA chips for so long. And the the idea, right, is that they could be fully reprogrammed to essentially copy those old platforms. Uh, and that means it's not doing software emulation. And that is a big deal because emulation is what kills the experience of older games, right? If a game, if you're playing, if you have a Switch and you go back and play those Super NES titles or like the Genesis titles and stuff, and especially the uh, Nintendo 64 games that just hit the Switch online platform, the emulation on those things can be wonky. Uh, Zelda, uh, you know, Ocarina of Time looks completely different on the Switch because of the way the software is trying to like pretend to be a Nintendo 64. The key here is like at the core level, at the CPU level, you could just like make a thing that is essentially replicating the chip in those older consoles. So what you have here is like a completely accurate gameplay experience, right? Like, have you noticed any differences, uh, James? Uh, yeah, I mean, 100%. So uh, I, I believe, was it, um, who did the review for the PlayStation Mini? Um, it was either you or uh, That was or me. Andy. That was yeah. me. Because that is a really good example of this because you, you mentioned two things there, Switch um, for, the, for the NES titles and uh, I'm talking about the PlayStation Mini. Now, both of those are official products made by those exact companies that, that made those games, but they've offered a sort of somewhat subpar experience, in, uh, particularly with, with, in Sony's case. Um, well, I mean, it's maybe not subpar, but it really was just a box with an emulator and you, that you can do on many other things, right? You're just paying money for the fact that it looks like an old PlayStation. But for me, what the problem really sort of occurs is that these things stack up. So the, the, the very core of software emulation is, is often something like libretto and things like this. And then you have RetroArch on top of it. And then you have Emulation Station on top of that. So you've got these three layers of open source software. And then the hardware you're playing it on, which could be literally anything, could be your phone, could be your desktop, could be, um, you know, any one of these semi-dedicated uh, handhelds. And there's just so, none of these things were made together. 
So they're all, you know, you've got these layers of abstraction that you're getting further away. And so you can have configuration glitches. And, um, you know, it's very well known that certain emulators are better for X and then others are better for Y. <laughs> but uh, do I want to change the emulator every time I'm loading up? No, I don't. You know, I want to just put, turn it on. So what you get with this is, uh, you know, it's, I suppose it's a bit like trying to run um, Mac OS on, on a Windows machine. You can do it, but why, why would you ever want to? Um, and it, it'll be functional, but it's not as good as if everything's vertically integrated. And I think that, to me, is really the key here. It really is a vertically integrated machine. Everything runs. Everything everything in that in this pocket was designed and built by the same company. So, of course, everything is highly tuned. And I know they're, they're really paying attention. For example, I bought a really shady uh, 108 games in one, Game Boy Advance thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. I figured, like, screw it, I'll just, like... Get this thing and I'll, I'll see what it does. And it actually didn't work in, in, in the pocket. Now, I contacted them, but it worked in a, an original Game Boy Advance. So I contacted them and they were like, can you link it to us? We're going to buy it and we're gonna, they're going to take it apart and figure out why it doesn't work. And then they're going to make it work. And they did that with something else. Mickey Mouse on a Game Gear was one of the games I tested. And that crops in in a weird way, which I guess is probably something to do with the master system slash game gear um tierness and when i told them about it, they said actually yes we know about that we've already implemented a fix so they can actually at a per game level do do these sort of things and, and their whole shtick is authenticity so you know i'm not trying to sort of you know sing too much of their praises right because you know there are a lot of people in this <laughs> thing it is, it is a premium item it does cost 220 dollars it's a lot more than if you're buying something from Amazon, you can pick up something you know, a bit shady, but it's going to be like $60 sort of thing. So it's over double that. But you are paying for, for a, a beautifully integrated thing that just is a, from top to bottom is just a really coherent system. Gotcha. And one, one thing worth mentioning too, is not just the FPGA stuff. It's like the screen on this thing sounds incredible because it is it is a small screen it's a portable screen but it's still it's a higher resolution than those other systems like any of the older systems but they implemented things to make it look like like the imperfections of well, the original systems is that yeah the thing? well that's their messaging they're they're, they're always yeah. like we replicate these screens quirks and all and it's really hard to un unpick exactly what they mean because you could argue that, oh, the FPGA is replicating the whole system. So any of those quirks, but I don't think it works like that because any of the quirks could have been at the sort of circuit board level or sort of radio interference. I don't know. There, there are things that won't happen in, in the FPGA. But what they did do is, for example, the, this, the resolution is exactly 10 times what it is on the, the original Game Boy and the original Game Gear. So every, everything right from the, off there, you're set up perfectly just for a 10 times scale. It's 615 PPI, which is kind of crazy. That's like... Too, too many. Too right. many PPIs. Yeah. It's, it is too many. It's like such a nerdy stat, but, it, but, uh -huh. um, but it's way above like the, the top iPhone. iPhone 13 is about in the 400, low 400s, I think. So, I think. so they're, they're able to sort of really dial it in like this. You know, there's just those, those sort of things that really sort of add to it. And that vertical integration I was talking about earlier, there's no mismatch between... These things. Have you played much on stuff like um, Retro Pie or Retro Arch and things? A like little this? bit, a little bit. Like I, I've never been, I've never fully gone in on any of those devices just because I haven't been fully satisfied with the emulation. But the minute, like, I saw your preview and I saw this thing, and we also know like Analog has been doing, they've been doing a lot of devices like this too. Like they have produced FPGA-driven uh, consoles as well. 
and people like them. They're very expensive, but people like them and they work properly. And I'm at the point where I'm like, you know what? Yeah, give give me some nice hardware I can hold. Uh, I do have a pile of old games somewhere, especially Game Boy Advance titles. So it's like, yeah, I, I want to bring those back. I want to go to game stores and pick up some titles again. Um, my question for you, James, who is this thing actually for? Is this thing for like a new younger gamer who wants to feel those older games in their like pristine way? Or is it for people like us who grew up with these things and can't let go? Um, yeah, it's a really good question, actually. So <laughs> yeah. if someone was saying to me, I want to buy a retro gaming um, thing, I want, it, I want it to be portable, you know, and uh, what would you recommend me? And I, I don't know if I would definitely off the bat recommend them this. It depends on who I'm speaking to. But if it's someone that just wants to dive into Tetris and uh, maybe some of the old like um, Castlevanias and, and things like that, I feel like there are other ways that if you're just going to be semi-casual about it, um, there, there. This is maybe not the way to go because I feel like this is hardcore enthusiasts for sure. Um, people mm-hmm. that are, are purists about like uh, their their whole experience, like someone who who wants, you know, the best headphones and really good, you know, this someone that really appreciates that sort of fine grain detail. Definitely going for that. Younger gamers, I think, why not? If you love. If you've sort of picked up some older titles somewhere and you've, you've enjoyed them and you really want to get into it, I think 100%. I definitely feel that there's a threshold you need to be above in terms yeah. of your care levels. Um, because this thing doesn't do uh, anything else. It's not a media player. <laughs> it doesn't have a touchscreen. It, it doesn't have Wi-Fi. There's no, there's no like, um, a- extra stuff. If you, go, if you look at all these sort of Anne Bernick, um, the retro ones I, I was telling you about, they they are hardcore specs. They're like we've got quad core and it does all this, and they're just throwing all this. This is none of that. This isn't about the stat wall. This is just pure. Uh, it's just a purity, I guess. It is the sort of word for it. So I feel like it's you know maybe people sort of that were there the first time around and, and are pretty into their games. Um, this, this is the sort of one to go for them. But I would definitely say try out retro gaming handhelds first. Because just to see if you're going to put it down after a couple of weeks, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, this thing—it's a commitment. You can't easily return it. I think like it's—it's it's one of those things. But you can't also, easily buy it. You can't easily moment, buy it because <laughs> the pre-order waves are going into 2023. From what I oh, see on the website, already, so. and, which is ridiculous. Yeah. I'm hoping that's just a temporary yeah. thing. That while they're they're sort of overwhelmed with it, with this sort of wave of orders, but 2023 already. Um, if you want to pre-order this thing, or not pre-order, or just straight order at this point. It's also it is selling for two hundred twenty dollars, which is uh, that's a pretty penny. It's that's twenty dollars more than they were originally aiming for, uh, because of like the supply chain impact. Again, global the global chip shortage strikes again, uh, kind of like getting us at these things. Um, just real quick, James, like how does this thing feel? You've you you know, you've held portable gaming systems for so long. Um, does it feel durable? Do the buttons feel clicky enough? Like, uh, did they get everything right? in your experience yeah for, for the actual pocket itself um i think it feels great it feels exactly like what um if i spent 220 dollars on something this is what i want it want it to feel like it's got a sort of scandinavian design that I, I you know the sort of matte black and or white if you want to get it in that just one little pop of color but the the buttons feel pretty good i'm not a huge fan of the shoulder buttons aren't quite they're a little spongy mm-hmm. but um unless you're getting really heavily into the game boy advanced stuff then you're you're probably not going to 
be too worried about that. But they're also, I mean, they're, they're totally fine. It's just it's the the, the only sort of nitpick really is uh, is on those. The D pad's fine. It plays better than the original Game Boy, which isn't necessarily saying much. But you know, yeah, feels, that much. Yeah, <laughs> um, it doesn't have the air in it. You know, you can't. There's no crease. You can't like um, squish it. And I've got another one. That there is definitely you can if you sort of give it a, a pinch you'll feel it sort of breathe in and you know and there's obviously a lot of there's a big vacuum inside of it so in terms of hardware it's this is definitely their strong point it's it's absolutely delightful and it's a talking point people will see it in Alaska I recently when I was reviewing it I took took it away went on a weekend away with some friends and we're like up in the mountains beautiful countryside but everyone's playing this thing because they've seen it on the table and everyone's just sort of naturally drawn to it and everyone yeah. no one yeah. no one you don't need to explain it to anyone because <laughs> uh, it's literally just a game boy that they were playing 25 years ago or or, or whatever it is so in terms of hardware it, definitely good mm-hmm. is it an all metal case or is it plastic and stuff too um you know when you get those brushed um plastics and you're like it's not cold yeah. like metal so I, I guess this is me saying that i don't know it's pretty it's definitely plastic on the back and they've done a pretty good job on the front uh, it, it wouldn't bother me either way if you know what i mean it, it feels it's got a nice matte finish um it, yeah it's definitely a, a really good looking bit bit of kit for sure it looks good it, it reminds me of like classic sony hardware too where it's like i just want to hold that i just want to like hold and touch this piece of kit because it looks really cool um do, do, does it feel safe in like your dean's pocket and stuff so i wouldn't do that because if i'd spent 220 bucks on this thing i've already got like uh there's a very minor line on it it's not a scratch Aww. but um you know when you get those matte surfaces and somehow you've just maybe scuffed it a little bit it's, it's not a scratch but i had to photoshop it out of my photos so have a look when my review goes live tomorrow that um you can you, you can sort of see it but um weirdly they said they sell an additional hard case um, but it's the weirdest thing because this is so well designed and so attractive, but the hard case is just trans transparent plastic, <laughs> and it has these two yeah. sort of clips that you have to like quite pressure in to to un. It's 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 a weird thing because everything else is so well done and this it's functional, but it you're kind of once you've taken it out of that, you have this empty two halves that you have to put somewhere. And, and I, I don't know, I was, yeah. I was less taken. And the dock as well, the dock, which you, means you can feed it into the TV, um, is again, it's great. But when you seat the, the, the pocket in it, it, it can kind of, it doesn't, it's not locked in. It's just got a gentle sort of, you have to push it and it will teeter. Um, it, you're not going to do that because you have to play with a controller. And, and But just from a, a basic design perspective, I'm surprised. I thought it might have got it a little nice and tight and like the old iPhone do- um, iPhone docks or iPod docks where it, it's sort of locked in there. It just felt, had a little bit of wiggle, which uh, is I, I can see that. How, how how does it look on the TV? Because I know like usually the like analog to digital push also introduces like a whole new set of like artifacts and stuff for gaming. Yeah. Now, the bigger issue really is that you're playing a game that was designed for like uh, sort of what is it? Six, 160 by 144. Right. <laughs> and you're, you're watching it on like um, on a 4K TV and it's like it outputs at 1080. So you've got this thing's doing 1080 and then my TV is scaling it up or, or whatever it is. Um, so I really don't think that's your issue. Your issue is, is the fact that everything is going to look a bit pixelated when you watch it on such a huge TV. Although I've had it on the projector I've got here, which is 120 inch and I'm playing Mario Kart and it was great. So it, it is pixelated, but it, it was still so much fun. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's still. That is a wild future we're living in where you can play Mario Kart. Is it the Game Boy Advance one? Yeah, the uh, Super Circuit. 
Okay, Super Circuit on a 120 inch projector screen. That's also the size of my projector screen. And I try not to like say that because it's like when I talk about playing Halo, I'm like guys, Halo looks big. Halo big on my <laughs> on my setup right now. It's uh, I can't imagine doing that with a Game Boy game. Yeah. Well, I showed you, I think, a screenshot of I actually had the Game Boy camera <laughs> in because it works with all those things as well. It doesn't matter what the accessory is. If it worked on a Game Boy, it will work on, on, on the pocket. And I put the Game Boy camera in, which when I, I bought it secondhand just for this review. And it still had photos on it, so the battery was still like <laughs> someone else's photos. Wow! Um, but through the dock, you can put it out obviously into the TV, and you, you have it come up. And it's you know it's it's an awful camera, it's terrible, but it's kind of bonkers. To, no one would have thought thirty years ago, twenty five years ago, whatever it is, that this Game Boy camera would be piping up onto you know a, a, a ultra short throw one hundred twenty inch. Uh, projectors so, amazing so amazing it is, it this is, kind is uh of... the future we're living in like uh hey climate change is gonna destroy us all the virus is everywhere but we got our game boys back baby <laughs> right it's, uh, it's great here's me in four bit webcam whatever it is <laughs> i don't know how, like don't correct me how many bits it is i, I didn't yeah. look it up but you know it's not many it's like pre-vga is is like <laughs> very very bad resolution this is really really bad Thank you so much, James, for diving into all this with us. Would love to chat with you more about all of your microphone stuff down the line. So, James, where can we find your work on the Internet? Uh, yeah, we've got you in Gadget, but where else can people find you? I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I don't do – I do a bit of uh, production for a podcast called True Spies, um, which is uh, pretty good. It's hosted by Vanessa Kirby. It's all about spies, so I do that in my – so whenever James, I have how have time. you not told me about this before? What? <laughs> have I not told you this? I'm sure I've... You've I've, not... First of all, I'm in love with Vanessa Kirby. I'm in love with spies. What are you, what are you talking about here? <laughs> so it's actually run by the New York Spy Museum as well. So it's in your hometown. Huh. <laughs> um, so check that out. You former, former hometown. But okay, cool. Oh, sorry. Cool. Yes, I forget that you're, you're down in Atlanta now. Um, so that's, that's kind of the main thing. Um, I, everything else is, is work in progress. Very cool. Thank you. And you're on Twitter. You're, uh, you're at Twitter, It's yeah. True. I, I, I realize that was probably yep. your original question. So, uh, yeah, I'm It's hey, True. Whatever, on, man. <laughs> I'm It's True on Twitter, which is I-T-S-T-R-E-W. And on mm-hmm. Instagram, don't follow me on Instagram. But if you wanted to, it's that. <laughs> it's That's True. All right. Thank you so much, James. Let's move on to some other news. And joining me to talk about that is our senior editor, Dan Cooper. Hello, Dan. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello. It's always fun to chat. Uh, yeah, when Sherlin is away, Dan can play. I think that's how it goes, right? That is pretty much how it goes, yes. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, it's a one-to-one swap. I mean, it's seamless. There's almost seamless. no difference between the two of us in, in any way. I can't tell. I can't tell. If I call you Sherlin during this episode, I'm sorry. Uh, but we, we've we got a bunch of news to dive into. Specifically, I want to shout out uh, a really cool investigative feature from Jess Condit at Engadget called How a VR Startup Took the Money and Ran to the Metaverse. And this is a feature that's been in the works for several years now. It's actually been, I believe it, it was started by Nick Summers, who used to work at Engadget. It's a long-running piece about um, Diedrich Reed, a guy who created this company called MetaWorld, but also has created a bunch of other companies. And uh, it's all been kind of a fraud. So it's a really interesting story to look into now that uh, metaverse is the uh, the hype word of the year, I think. So be sure to check out the piece. And we will be chatting with Jess about this um, towards the end of this episode. So tune in for that. So there's really not too much news this week. Uh, but one thing I want to point out is that uh, I was in New York last week, if you heard last week's episode, uh, to check out a Dell preview event where they showed off a bunch of stuff. 
But uh, some of the coolest stuff are these concept devices. And we've written up a few of them. Um, Sherlin was really taken with the concept pari, which is this really cool thing. Like, imagine you have a monitor uh, with a webcam at the top. And what if you could take that webcam off? What if it was a portable device uh, that you could just plug anywhere on the screen? What would that mean for video chatting? What would that mean for like collaboration with people? The idea from Dell is that uh, basically it would help you bring the camera down to eye level so you're actually having a face-to-face conversation with somebody on Zoom rather than an extreme camera angle like I'm having with Dan right now. So I just want I'm wondering like Dan would a removable webcam like help your work situation right now because of uh, how we're talking at this point? I mean, you you seem to take great issue with my webcam angle. I I mean, uh, my laptop is on a stand, so it's nicely yeah. elevated. I, I think uh, my... in general, in general, for photography and video, low low camera angles not so great unless you're dropping an album cover. So that, that's the main thing. But I'm, would you find I mean, this thing useful? Yeah, I would. I think the big issue, the big issue really is that. You know, when a laptop's on a desk, when when you look like me, especially, <laughs> you're always going to be shooting up at the least flattering angle. I mean, you know, you know, Huawei. Obviously, they, as a sort of security measure, put their webcams in a in a kind of pop up key inside the laptop deck keyboard, and so essentially, it is the least flattering angle you could possibly get. Sort of. So <laughs> basically, it's, yeah. you lead with your double or triple chins. And, and then everything else is just window dressing. So the ability to kind of move the webcam up a couple of inches, I mean, hell, it would be great to do um, video calls from like the MySpace angle specifically. Um, but I, I do think that there needs to be a revolution in terms of where webcams go, principally because um, they, they're not fit in terms of how they're designed now they're just not fit i mean what fit for really how we live these days it would be lovely if you could change it you know and and obviously the idea that you could attach it to the display so that it is sort of at your perfect eye level um i love obviously the risk the the risk of having it detachable is that you lose it you lose it uh there could be issues i mean that the it means there's a limited battery life and there are other things to think about. But I think you bring up a great point, Dan, like we're relying so much on our webcams. Now um, we are waiting for some sort of like great innovation in this space. And I think what's really cool about this too, is that, you know, when we were talking to Dell and this thing, concept Perry, it's just a concept. It's not a shipping product yet. Um, But the idea is that you could potentially have more than one of these. Um, If you look at our video of this thing, uh, Sherlin has a concept Perry on like an arm that's pointing down and i can imagine when we're producing the show you know sometimes we want to show off gadgets and stuff so if you had one camera on your monitor looking you know straight at eye level and another on a mount somewhere on your desk so you can actually show off devices or something on a table that would be pretty cool like juggling multiple cameras uh i think given the way gopros have kind of shifted the way people capture action you know footage on the go we don't quite have something as nimble uh, on the webcam front. Sure, you could use a GoPro as a webcam. That seems like a really expensive solution to uh, to solving your webcam woes. Um, have you have you heard about the Opal, Dan? The Opal C1, which is the three hundred dollar camera that a lot of people have been talking about lately too. Oh, is this the super fancy one? The super fancy one, like yes. uh, Fast Company. Fast Company. Jared Newman at Fast Company wrote up this thing called uh, the article is called "Would You Pay Three Hundred Dollars to Look Better on Zoom?" The Opal C One is a camera with the four K Sony image sensor. That's the one that Dell also has in their current four K camera. 
Uh, but the Opal also has like good microphones, uh, AI processing to make your image look better. Um, for 300 bucks, like, I, yeah, sure. I think a lot of people would do that because right now what people are doing is uh, if you have an old <laughs> DSLR or an old mirrorless around, you mount it to your desk and you do some cable magic and software magic and you turn that into webcam. And that is something like I'm halfway through that process because I have almost all the things I need except the, a good, the proper lens to get this distance. Uh, but that would be the best way to get a webcam, to get video footage uh, for video calls. Not everybody can do that. That's a lot of work. I don't know. Have you considered doing that, Dan? Do you know what? I looked at, because we, we, about a year or a year or half ago, we uh, we put out a tutorial on, on yep. how to do that very thing. Yep. And I looked at it and thought, that's too much work. Too it, hard. I, I can't be bothered. It's too hard. You look at that guide, uh, I think for techie people, sure. You're like, oh yeah, sure. I'm going to get a desk mount. I'm going to get a battery that plugs into the wall to give my camera unlimited juice time. I'm going to get like a short lens. Like you got to get a lot of stuff. You can't really travel with it. Uh, the, the Opal and most webcams, the joy of those things is that you can move it around. You just, it's one device. You could travel with it. Um, yeah. So I don't know. The, the, the Dell concept Perry seems really cool. And, uh, hopefully it ends up being like a shipping thing of some kind. I don't know what's going to happen with this. Like, would you buy one, Dan? And what would be your price threshold on this thing? Do you know what? If I was, if I was video conferencing every single day, yeah. Um, given that it's an accessory and I'm always loath to spend a huge amount of money on accessories. Cause I, you know, it's that thing of you, you lose it when you change computers. I would say, you know, $199, $200 is sure. probably sort of where I would go, but mm-hmm. you know, um, it would need to, it would need to be that sort of one, I buy it. And that's my solution for that's your solution. several years. And a webcam, yeah, webcam should last you like five years, I think. Like there's a reason we haven't really seen this tech change much because the sensors haven't changed much. Like the Sony 4K sensor, that was like the biggest new leap for a while. Uh, but even then people don't need, you don't need 4K on your webcam. What you need is like- No, you, no, you really Good don't. light and also, capture, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, most platforms compress the hell out of the feed anyway. So it's not as if, unless you're- Unless you're streaming, which I would say is a different use case. If you're streaming, do not buy a webcam for your kind of your single solution. When you're streaming, you buy a streaming setup. With you buy, well, the yeah, yeah, or you do you know? the DSLR. Um, yeah. The, the good thing about 4K sensor is that you can like crop in a little. So if you're in a cluttered room, if you can't like find the right spot, then at least you can crop in and still get like a decent 1080p image. Uh, anyway, that thing seems cool. Uh, Dell also showed off a Concept Luna laptop, which it just looks like a laptop. But I think what's really interesting is what's inside of it. Um, they basically rearranged the hardware so that it's more repairable and it's uh, easier to like recycle when you're done using it too. So uh, they say it has 10 times fewer screws, a deep cycle battery, bio-based circuits. I'm still unclear what that means. I think it's just like, uh, more, you know, there's flax fiber, uh, in, in some of the PCBs, just a lot of things here that can, I think you can throw it away and not have to worry about like weird metals going into your bin. Uh, any thoughts on the stand? Cause I know you, you also checked out that, uh, modular laptop, right? I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Um, this has been an area of interest for me for a long while and, I have to. I'm fairly sure that when they started talking about bio-based materials, they just watched a lot of Star Trek Voyager and got carried away. But um, I mean, Dell's always of of the big manufacturers. Dell and Lenovo 
and, and HP as well. They've always been better than a lot of the other manufacturers. But certainly, I think, um, you know, Framework, who this year released um, the sort of the, the almost fully modular repairable laptop, you know, it's only a couple of screws to get into it. I would consider myself to be a sort of terrified novice when it comes to <laughs> yeah. taking stuff apart. And, you know, they said, feel free. This This should be so easy that even you, Dan can't mess this up and i was able and the thing is not only was it is it designed to not be intimidating and easy but it's also really quick i was able to change the keyboard unit in two and a half minutes great and about 50 seconds of that was me struggling because i didn't realize the screws were captive and so therefore i was trying to pull you it were out. like you kept screwing yeah yeah there's um i feel like removing things on laptops the big thing is like people strip screws all the time are they using like better screw sizes to make it easier to actually use a normal screwdriver and stuff yeah they are i think um i want to say there's only two different screw types and they okay um and most of them are like a standard standard size don't ask me mm-hmm. what it is off the top of my head that i think <laughs> that i think is the key the key discussion about repairability that lots of people forget is that it's not about is it repairable it's is it repairable for the general consumer this right, is something right. that annoyed me when um, Apple said they'd start releasing right. um, aftermarket or, you know, sort of re- official spare parts for um, the iPhone. And they were making a big song and dance about it. But also, I don't think people would necessarily feel comfortable pulling that display. You know, novice users would feel comfortable pulling the display off. Yeah. So with the Dell, yeah. um, I mean, I would say this is where the industry needs to be going now in terms of making sure this stuff runs for a long while if dell can do this and they can do it well i mean it does look as if they've they've had to sort of rethink where the components go put them all in a more logical place and certainly make more room for that big beefy battery because that is a big battery that's a big battery Uh, i do like battery a lot of these companies have especially dell has optimized to make things cheaper to build you know not necessarily for uh to get back in there and repair things easily so maybe this could have an effect on price down the line, but you know what? We are still in the middle of the global chip shortage and uh, it means bad things. It means especially you'll probably have to be using your hardware for a very long time. So, Hey, if you're feeling like your computer's slowing down and uh, you have something that you can actually plug more Ram into now's a good time to do that because uh, you'll get more life out of your machine. This may be, this may be the way we have to live for, you know, for the foreseeable future too. Like, Sure, they're, and we're going to talk more about this in the future, um, but, you know, chip companies are still struggling to produce supply. More foundries are being built, but it's going to be like three to five years before we can actually see the fruits of that labor. So, hey, folks, uh, love your hardware. Take care of your hardware because you're going to be stuck with it for a while. And if you, when you need to upgrade, you'll either have a hard time finding things in stock or, um, you know, end up paying a lot more for it. So the idea of something like Concept Luna, I think is pretty cool. It's pretty cool to have like something that's more repairable and more recyclable. Any further thoughts, Dan? Like I know you've been thinking about this stuff for a while. In yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, what I would say, I think framework deserves a big chunk of credit purely for pushing the conversation that way. It was going that way. But I think um, the guy, Nirav, the, the founder, um, basically said, you know, he's not intending to try and conquer the PC market. It's essentially he's out there at the very fringe building a device that then will force everyone else to reconsider what they're doing. And I think the fact that Dell are now doing this sort of speaks to the fact that 
um, the conversation is changing. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking forward to you know two or three years down the line when we're not throwing away when we're not throwing away all of the laptop components that we you know there's lots of stuff in a laptop that you're you know when you throw away your old version or you recycle the old version there's plenty of stuff in there that's not you're not getting an upgrade on you know once you've got your 4k display or or even uh, an hd display for most uses that's fine you don't Mm -hmm. need to replace it until you burn it out same with things like the io and the speakers stuff like that it's just waste it's needless waste so just eliminate that (laughs) that's right there I'm right there with you, and I, I think we all, we could all use something that's a little more repairable. Uh, moving on to another story, too. Just quickly, I want to mention that uh, we saw that Apple had removed mentions of uh, its controversial CSAM uh, material, or its like CSAM approach, and that's stuff around child sexual abuse material. Uh, we talked about a couple of months ago that they were going to start, uh, they were going to enable a feature that would scan your iCloud photo libraries for uh things I, I believe like things related or known uh known material within CSAM databases that could be related to child sexual abuse. And it seems kind of useful and Trillin and I dove into this. It also seems like it could be a huge privacy overreach and a lot of security experts kind of uh, took issue with this when Apple talked about it. They have not said they're gonna stop working on this, but the weird thing is that they have taken um all removal of CSAM, all removal of like scanning your photos and stuff from their uh, from their website. So uh, I don't know. We don't know. We don't know <laughs> I, what's happening. Yeah. Do you know what I will say? Um, it seems like one of those instances where Apple is probably doing the right thing in terms of building the technology, and I think it's it's an unwritten rule or an, or an unspoken sort of truth, maybe is a better way of saying it. It's an unspoken truth that all tech companies that have cloud platforms will have human moderators doing spot checks and audits. The idea that, um, you know, you can upload anything to the cloud and it is, and, and no one ever will be able to access it or see it is a bit of a, of a fallacy. And so I think the idea of, automating some of that or maybe just reducing the intrusion on most regular users is probably well-intentioned. But I think for obvious reasons, when you're talking about something so serious like this, and if if you're glib about it, and to a certain extent, you know, whenever we hear Silicon Valley in general talking about, oh, we can automate it with AI, it'll be fine. We'll train a model and all will be well. And I think we've learned over the last decade that that approach does not necessarily work well. So um, I'm I'm glad that I'm sure there's going to be more consideration put to this. And when, and I'm sure it will come back eventually. And I think as long as that that's um, a lot less opaque in terms of the conversation than Apple normally is, mm-hmm. then I think we can have a mature conversation about it. But yeah, I'll know, in, sept- in September, Apple said that they would be delaying uh, the rollout of its CSAM detection tools uh, indefinitely, too. So we kind of knew they would be holding off on this. I think removing that language from the website is just like a thing to you know cause people to freak out less. But yeah, hopefully when the stuff does end up coming like they're in touch with security advocates too because i feel like that is that's the big thing there's a lot of potential for this technology to be 
to be overused. And uh, I want to point out a piece on Engadget. Uh, Carissa Bell, frequent guest on the podcast here, uh, wrote up a piece in August called Why Apple's Child Safety Updates Are So Controversial. Um, it's worth the read to see like what the big deal is, because I do think on the face of it, hey, stopping child pornography, stopping the, the sharing of it is a good thing. But she talks about like why it, there could be downsides to this method for doing so. So give that a read as well. Can we not call it child pornography though? We could call we could call it. I, I think CSAM is like yeah. CSAM is better because there's yeah. like yeah the kids don't consent. So like yep there's yep. yeah. In other Apple news too, if you're using macOS Monterey, uh, they have finally enabled SharePlay, which is the feature that can let you you know share movies and music with your friends and you know join together with friends to watch stuff uh i've not tested this out uh in a working fashion yet i've previewed monterey quite a bit uh so i'm looking forward to seeing how this works um is this something you would actually use dan like it is a cool idea but i don't know how know, how much people dig it yeah did you know what it's it's something that um during the the sort of the the worst parts of lockdown last year, me and me and my one of my best friends would um, buy like uh, stand up gigs, sort of on demand live stand up gigs. Uh-huh. And this sounds like a very Dan had... Cooper thing. Yeah, You're completely. just like, give me the rush of going to a comedy club and not knowing if this person could be funny, please. Um, <laughs> but what we were doing was we were watching it, we were streaming it sort of with to our TVs. And then we had zoom open beside us with the volume turned down because of all the sync issues. But the idea there was so we could sort of enjoy the Mm -hmm. idea of sharing that experience. That's cool. That's cool. Which So if, if that process can be automated, but I think there's loads of content restrictions. So I think there are, it's only D plus and and TV plus right now that actually allow it. So I don't think, you know, the, the go faster stripe or the dice platforms that we were using, um, unless they're going to sort of, suddenly get the budget to integrate this sort of stuff it's not going to really work for everyone until it until it can apply to every platform that's out there unless you really love disney plus shows you know i'm sure people do yeah i remember when trillin was testing this too she had trouble watching um ted lasso with matt smith and ted lasso is a show on both of our regions but for some reason like sharing that show even though it exists on apple's platform in you know in the uk and in the us watching that together with somebody across a region had was a problem you know there there's a lot of things to see here it'd be nice if this stuff was completely unrestricted but i also understand if the uh the media companies were just like no what are you doing like you're (laughs) you're giving away our stuff um they're just so used to locking everything down but i'm hoping this feature ends up working out Let's move on to what we've been working on. Dan, anything you want to shout out on your end? Yes, indeed. So this morning, a piece of mine went up discussing uh, Arrival's new electric car. Now, Arrival uh, was founded by one of the co-founders of Yota, if, you're, if your memories go back that far. No, for the, yeah, there, the there's a lot screen. of names going on here. So what is, <laughs> what is Yota? Yota was a dual screen phone back in the day right, before yes. that was a thing. And yes. it had an e-ink display mm-hmm. on the back. So you could do your, your, um, you know, your Kindle book reading or book reading, article reading, anything that you wanted a low power display for, you sort of turned off the main display, flipped it over, and then you could do stuff with the low power display. It was quite cool and quite clever, but I don't necessarily think it was a big hit. Um, but yeah, Dennis, I want to say Svetlov, but don't, 
please don't um, test my pronunciation of that. Uh, then went and founded a company called Arrival. And they have been working, I think, for the last five or six years. And uh, they're based in the UK. They've got uh, facilities that they're building in the US as well. And their idea is to build um, large EVs. So there's a bus they're working on and a van. And the van has been picked up by UPS. And that's going to be there. I think UPS have, have already guaranteed an order for 10,000 UPS trucks. And the thing that they unveiled this morning, which I went to see on Tuesday, is their car. Now, rather than it being an EV for all of us, it's it's essentially designed to be the EV for rideshare drivers. So it's it's a taxi more or less. And the idea is that it's it's very small, it's very light. It uses a sort of woven composite. It's not plastic, but it's sort of a woven poly something composite panel. So it's very light, and all of the space is essentially given over to the passenger cabin. Um, so. Uber drivers can poodle around cities, do trips to the airport and back, and it's very efficient, it's very light. And the idea is that eventually, you know, um, they'll be able to sell it cheaper than or at least cost cost equal to the sort of vehicles that Uber drivers uh, buy right now. And um, so I went to look at the Alpha prototype, which I couldn't drive it around, but I got to sit in it and look at it. And it's it's a very cool, very utilitarian piece of tech. Uh, it's it's cooler than a, it, it's. I think I wrote in the story. It looks really uncool. It's sort of like it, it it's looks sort of like, like uh, B. It looks like eighty sci-fi. It looks like they <laughs> took that and was just like you know, let's just round off all these edges. Let's make everything a little flat. Yeah. Do you know what? There is that. There is a little bit of kind of sci-fi 80s styling, but also in the same way that like, you know, work boots are cool because they're sort of anti-cool. I think this has that very similar vibe where um, it's very practical, very utilitarian, but also quite humane. There's some lovely details, you know, the all glass roof, really comfortable seats. There's so much space. Like you wouldn't believe it. it it's you can't really tell, but it's really tall. It's sort of got the same sort yeah, of height as, yeah. a, as a Land Rover Discovery. It's even got the same. It looks uh, very much like a Discovery, like yeah. a shrunken Discovery from the back. Someone called it a um, a Cyber Twingo in the comments, <laughs> which I think says, I can, says I it all. I can see that. Um, yeah. It reminds me, the height of it almost reminds me of like the new Nissan uh, yellow cabs that New York uh, cab yeah. drivers started using. And yep. the cool thing about those is that you just walk in and it's like, it's not like you're scooting down to get into a car. You just kind of walk in and then they have the glass roof too. So you're seeing all of New York. So I, yeah, I like that. Um, I am, I am testing cars myself, especially like family cars. I'm looking for like high tech family cars uh, for myself and also to write about. So one thing I've noticed is, man, I hate it when there's no sunroof or moonroof. I just, I, I've, I've started to hate it because these cars are getting so big. If you have nothing above you, it just feels like you're in a coffin. Like you have no natural light, really. It's just, it's a really weird restrictive thing. So this is a nice feature. And it looks like this thing has a lot of cargo space. Um, Not a lot of yeah. cargo space, weirdly enough. It's 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 all passenger space. The okay, With this okay. version, at the very least, there's only room for sort of two two large and two small suitcases. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, even yeah. then yeah. they were saying fundamentally, it might just be that we make the seats sort of pull forward a bit so that you can sort of sacrifice some of the leg room to make the cargo space bigger. But I have I to say, it's yeah. so comfortable to sit inside. Like you sit in sit in that rear seat 
and you don't feel like you're in a car. You feel like you're in. You feel like you're sat on a park bench with all the room in the world. You know, that's a that's, that's a sign that's of a good need. cab. And I feel like yeah. people in people in cities without cabs don't understand like what that vibe is like. But I, I always I appreciated like getting one of those good yellow cabs like when I could in New York. Um, this is really cool, Dan. And uh, wait, what are you driving at home these days? So I drive. I don't think there is a, an equivalent in the U.S., but I drive a Toyota Auris. Which is the, it's one down from a Prius. They've just renamed okay. it or denamed it back to the Corolla, which is what it was before. Right, I don't right, know right. whether the Corolla in the US is exactly the same, but it's, um, cause you know, like even when it's the same name, the US version is normally four times the size and about half the fuel economy. You so, know, that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. But you're, yeah. you've got a RAV4, haven't you? I have a RAV4. I have the 2017 RAV4 hybrid, which is a really good car, but I am, looking for something a little bigger i found like for trips for trips and stuff like um basically they, we did a beach trip this year um where it was just me uh my wife and my daughter and like all the beach gear that we needed and we were driving it to my parents house because they have a they have a honda pilot so it's a bigger car we were all going to drive together um I had to stuff the RAV4 like to the brim. I had to have like beach chairs and stuff on the front seat because my wife usually sits in the back with uh, my daughter just like keep her calm for an hour. Um, The trunk was completely full. Front seat was like packed. I had like just like my passenger was like all the cargo next to me. I was like, this is not sustainable. Like I want (laughs) to I want to be able to do nice long road trips at some point and flying with the kid is not always great, especially with COVID still going around. But we're in an area where if I drive five hours, I'm on a Florida beach, you know? So it's like, okay, I want to take more advantage of that. So having a bigger thing I think would be useful. But I think within the city, uh, I'm really intrigued by this thing, Dan. So I hope this works out. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully we're going to see like a big change in terms of transportation in general over the next 10 years. Uh, I know the Biden administration is making a big push for EVs in the U.S. Um, I know in the U.K. and in, throughout Europe, too, like, Things are moving in a good direction, but uh, yeah, I want it to be better. It's slow. The progress is slow. And also, um, I think it's always worth mentioning that one of the big issues is always that public transport needs more infrastructure and funding for the simple reason that if you if we just swap every sort of fossil fuel powered car for a an electric powered car that will not end climate change because we'll still have all the issues with capacity with the emissions necessary to power those vehicles the emissions necessary to create those vehicles so i think the next thing i'm going to buy is an e-bike i'm been i've been keeping my eye out for a while and i know that i don't want to sound like a like a like a smug when i say this right <laughs> uh that's just that's just your normal town dad it, yeah like, <laughs> Like they're not for everybody and they're certainly not for every single day. Like if it's blowing a gale outside, of course you don't want to get out on your bike. But there are times and instances where an e-bike makes a hell of a lot of sense. You know, when it's dry, when it's a trip under, say, two or three miles, you know, when you're in a city um, the size of this one, if you want to get from one side of the city to the other, it's easier to do that on a straight line through the main part of town with the bike than it ever would be to go all the way around the ring road mm-hmm. in a car. Are you thinking and, a normal, like an e-bike that looks like a normal bike, Dan, or like a cargo bike? Because the cargo bikes are the big things that I'm seeing people really get hyped on. I have friends in like in Boulder, Colorado, which is like a mecca of like, 
you know, granola people and also like cool <laughs> transportation. Like they have bike lanes yeah. all th- all around the city that don't even touch normal car traffic. So it's like it's just beautiful. What do you think about doing a cargo bike or like a normal thing? Do you know what? I've looked at cargo bikes and the price. I mean, the price They're of a insane. cargo bike yeah. is just so much. I mean, I think um, there's one I saw, which is, I think, French or Dutch. And it's got a very nice sort of cargo hold with like a very small bench seats and straps or so, you know seat belts so i could put both of my kids in there and take them into town very easily um but it's about four and a half thousand pounds which is what if it's if it's sort of almost i always double. in my head it's sort of almost it's double, double in the US, yeah. so that would be eight thousand dollars that's yeah. you know i'm i'm in journalism that's about yeah you know if that's i was in tech of- you know, different story, but it's usually it's usually people who are a little more affluent in the U.S. who are going big on the cargo bike thing. But I've been I've been testing one e-bike, which has like a has a huge like um, I don't know what the thing on the back where you could actually put cargo like it has a big bench in the back and also has space for uh one child seat. And we've been using that during the summer and that's been really interesting. So, you know what, Dan, we will bring you back for a transportation chat and also for me to make fun of the Hyperloop because I know how much you, you're just such a big fan. Such you know, a big fan I'm not, a, I'm, I think you're suggesting I cover Hyperloop uncritically, <laughs> which I'm going to take issue with. But I think the whole point is it's, it's a good idea. It's a good like just any conversation around the about better public infrastructure is is worth for sure. For sure, good. Discussion. We can have that fight. We will have that <laughs> fight in a future episode because I, I don't know if it's better, but we will see. Uh, thank you so much, Dan. Uh, let's move on to our pop culture picks. And I feel like the main reason, the like the key reason we're bringing Dan onto this episode is that Succession season three has finally ended or has just ended. We are all still reeling from the finale. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the show and why I think specifically the Engadget audience too should be watching. I think it's the best thing on TV right now. It also directly ties into technology in many ways. Like it is all about the, on a broad level, the show is all about like, you know, the leader of a, of a large media company, like a big Fox like company and his kids who are vying to take it over or have some position of power within it. Um, and that's it. It's it's that royal drama of this very elite family and how they relate to other elite people and how they control politics and all sorts of things. Um, why should people watch Succession, Dan? Like, that's that's what? the thing oh. we should start with. Yeah. Why should people watch Succession? See, I feel I feel very smug. I was I was a very early booster <laughs> of Succession. Yeah. So I've been telling we people both to were, watch We it. were there. We were right there. Yeah. Um, why should you, why should you watch Succession? It's very good. I think it is one of the, it's a very smart show and it's a very fun show. And one of the things that I love about it is that it is a drama written principally by a group of British, uh, sitcom writers. And so whenever, you know, the, you never go more than like three minutes without a joke, and so it's it's tremendously funny. It's tremendously dark. It is so much fun to watch. But then there are moments like in the season finale that's just happened where something that, that happens that's completely organic and in retrospect makes a measure of sense. But it's still an utter shock when it actually happens, you know? Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned, so Succession is created by Jesse Armstrong, who has produced, you know, some, he has been a part of some of the best British like sitcoms out there. I'm thinking of like 
everything with like Mitchell and Webb, that Mitchell Webb look, the thick of it, and especially Peep Show, a show Peep yep. shot entirely in first person through through the eyes of uh, you know characters. That show is entirely on Hulu right now. It used to be something I had to like order, I had to get the DVDs or somehow acquire it. Um, but now it's readily accessible, and Peep Show is a hilarious, hilarious thing. Um, it is wild to me to see uh, the creator of that show, which is a straight-up comedy that maybe is occasionally dramatic, uh, is now basically like spearheading one of the best dramas, uh, taking a direct stab at like American excess and American culture too. Like, it is it, it is fantastic. I think from the cast, uh, Brian Cox, uh, Kieran Culkin, Matthew McFadden. Um, we were talking about this before the show. But Matthew McFadden is the strangest person to see cast <laughs> as the like dopey Midwest guy who doesn't quite belong with the elites. Because if you've been watching movies, a movie or TV, um, certainly British like stuff over the last like 20 years, you'd recognize him as the lead of MI5. He was basically the British back ba- uh, Jack Bauer to a certain extent. Yep. Um, he was the British Jack Bauer. He was the star of Ripper Street. So he was yep. the... Did you get uh, Ripper Street was on Amazon, I think. It was that on was Amazon. Amazon. I never show. checked it, but I, I did see that. It seemed like, yeah, it was an interesting role for him. Uh, I also know him from Joe Wright's excellent uh, Pride and Prejudice adaptation. And I love Joe Wright. And he is, he's like Matthew McFadden's fantastic in that. Anyway, strong cast. Um, this show treats swearing and like just like people using colorful language like an art form. And I think that's the that's the big thing. Get past the pilot. Maybe give it like three episodes if you have not seen any of it, because I think the pilot the pilot in particular is really, really bleak. Like there's some bleak, like rich people privilege stuff happening there where it's like, oh, man, I hate all these people. And why would I watch anything about them? Um, but you know a what? couple episodes in, you're like, OK, now I'm on board. What's up? It's to to be really stupid. Do you remember? um uh, Jamie Lannister at the very start of, of Game yep. of Thrones, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I guess is the thing now that we can use as an example because A, <laughs> that show's ended and B, everyone in the whole world pretty much watched Game of Thrones, whether they wanted to or not. And so you start with a character who is, who's a two-dimensional villain and then isn't even humanized, but certainly you spend time with this character and the the portrait of them is fleshes out and keeps fleshing out and you become... You become invested in their journey, even if they are also a really bad person. And I think Succession is essentially a show about 20 Jamie Lannisters because everyone, <laughs> it's everyone the entire family. Yeah. has has dirty fingers. Dirty they fingers. are they, they have are the most killed people. wealthy. They, they are disgusting. People. Yeah. Yep. I mean, they are also, um, you know, they are running a media conglomerate that is not doing good things. And certainly there is a, there is a moment in the third season, which I won't spoil, even though it happened several weeks ago, in which they, you know, they make a deal with someone who is tremendously odious. And they essentially promise to put the whole weight of the conglomerate behind this utter expletive deleted. And they're very fine with the the sort of the immorality of doing so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will also, say, yeah, that's season three brings in a lot more guests, like a few more guest stars. And specifically, I think Alexander Skarsgård, who appears in the season, is basically a cross between Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey. Like 
the no, leader. He's, no, he's Daniel Eck. It's it's a cross between Zuckerberg and Daniel. We Eck. don't we don't really so we don't really hear much about Eck over here. Um, but okay, okay, I, I, I hear that. Like we don't hear the stories <laughs> about like Eck's humanity or lack thereof over here. Eck is the uh, the head of Spotify. <laughs> he um, is but Skarsgård plays this tech bro, basically a guy behind a big streaming technology company who is just like above humanity. He is almost like um, what's his face uh, from Watchmen. Manhattan. Oh um, yeah. He he is sort of like all these humans are beneath me. Everything going on in this world is like I don't need to care about, but what I care about is, you know, building this giant uh empire and his uh his approach to it, his inhumanity, I think is just kind of fascinating to watch and Skarsgård is the guy where it's like, yeah, we've seen him be vampires. We've seen him be like genuinely evil people. And this to me feels the most chilling because it's like I see reflections of the billionaire tech bros who are currently basically running our world now. Did him. you notice mm-hmm. also that as a, as something that, that passed almost completely, I think, unnoticed and unremarked is that he is this sort of emotionally unavailable, money-obsessed monster. But also, he does love a... Uh, can we can we say the S word? Should I say poop sure, post? Sure. He does love... He does love a shit post, that man. And, you know, there was lots of consternation when he started uh, shit posting on Twitter. And I just wonder whether there are other um, slightly dodgy billionaires who uh, who also crave crave the appeal, the slightly it's parasocial true. appeal of people on Twitter. It's, he, I mean, he is I'm a weird... Nothing saying nothing he's a weird hybrid of like the worst of all the major tech bros right now i think that's the main way to put it like he, he he's a bit of zuckerberg's like blank death stare he's a bit of like musk's like uh social tanking like so using social media to either tank or increase the value of their company based on a single post it is it is absolutely wild anyway people um I, I I think the main takeaway here is watch Succession. If you, you are listening to this podcast, you should probably watch it. Uh, the people are terrible, but I think the core of the show is like how their awfulness. Um, they'll ne- basically never get to be happy. And I think there is some enjoyment in watching these like rich elites just basically suffer through life. Um, anyway, that's also what I that's find. the synopsis for the Engadget podcast, right? That's true. It's absolutely <laughs> true. One other thing. I want to mention real quick, and thanks to Mark Dell in the chat for bringing this up because I forgot to uh, I forgot to even think about this. But one thing that dropped last week was the Matrix Awakens, which was an Unreal Engine five tech demo, and I just want to shout this out real quick because this thing looks incredible. Did you did you take a look at any of this footage, Dan? It no, is, I haven't yet. Okay, it is a it, currently it's a PlayStation Five and Xbox Series X exclusive to show off like what Unreal Engine Five can do on those platforms. But you can also see um, you could see the full video in like 4K 60 FPS on YouTube right now. Uh, it features character models of Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss that look. I wouldn't say exactly human like, but certainly like CG render level like what you'd imagine a CG rendered character would look like five years ago. It's doing that in real time. Um, it has a big highway chase sequence that basically looks exactly like the Matrix Reloaded chase, except it's happening in real time. You can play it, and it looks like, um, according to a lot of folks like who've been working on that, it's actually 
even more um, more accurate in terms of like car crashes and whatnot compared to uh, the way they shot Matrix Reloaded, where they they didn't even have the technology to like accurately simulate car crashes and whatnot. So this thing is really cool. If you have a next generation console, I think it's worth checking out. At the very least, hit play on this on YouTube, on your TV, and just like take a look at how far we have come. And uh, yeah, like uh, this thing just kind of floored me. Um, I'll be talking more about this not next week because we're not having a show next week but we will be talking about this during the next podcast where we'll certainly talk about the matrix resurrections the next movie uh in the series and i'm very excited to talk about that so stay tuned for all of that anything else you want to mention dan in terms of what you've been watching or this matrix thing do you know what i will say unreal i think unreal engine if if we're not declaring it already unreal engine is eating cinema in the next sort of five years i mean i've I did a story about um, Rebellion in the UK building their own version of the of the ILM stagecraft platform. We now have, I think, um, Star Trek Discovery is now doing virtual sets using Unreal Engine. Please don't fact check me on that. I need to do a check. <laughs> but obviously, ILM has used it for all of the, the Disney Plus shows to a certain extent. It's all using Unreal Engine. They've got all of the assets and everything else. Uh, I think it's not going to be long before... Unreal Engine is cinema, and cinema is Unreal Engine. I think that's that's going to be a thing that happens. We will be we'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, Mark Dell also points out the uh, the Unreal Five demo also works on Xbox Series S. Uh, I have not seen what the footage looks like on that, but honestly, that's a that thing was the Xbox Series S is basically comparable to the Xbox One X from several years ago. So yeah, sure, it, it should do a decent job. It probably won't get all the nice graphical flourishes. So anyway, check that out and uh, tune in for our next episode when we finally dive into the new Matrix and all of that fun stuff. Thanks for joining us, folks. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find me online at, at Devendra. You can find uh, Dan Cooper online at Daniel W. Cooper, I believe. And James True is at, at It's True. That's I-T-S-T-R-E-W. And of course, Sherlyn is still at Sherlyn Low, and you can go bother her during her vacation. You can email us at podcastandgadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts, including Spotify. Stay tuned for our chat with Jessica Condit about her piece on Meta World. It's a great investigative piece, and uh, I really think it's worth hearing what Jess has to say about it. We're out, folks. We don't really get to do too many investigative features very often here at Engadget, but this week, Jessica Condit, our senior editor, uh, basically put together this piece about a VR company or a metaverse company that's been kind of a scam. The article is called How a VR Startup Took the Money and Ran to the Metaverse. And Jessica Condit is joining me right now. How's it going, Jess? Hey, it's going all right. Uh, I'm not getting scammed oh. today, so not that I don't know get of. scammed. So it's yeah, a good please, day. Uh, listeners, don't get scammed. Jess, this story, as I hear it, has been in the works for years. So can you give me like a high level description of what it's really about? And uh, yeah, trace back to like when this is all started for you. Yeah. Um, so this is um, first of all, I want to say like Aaron Suporis was a huge like part of this story. This was not just me like on my own doing this. Um, and then Nick Summers, a former Engadget senior editor, Love he Nick. also yeah yes we love Nick and so we got to pull his name back and uh, throw it throw it on the article too because we all actually interacted 
with this uh, developer, Diedrich Reed, in, mm-hmm. gosh, 2016? Uh, this was five <laughs> years ago? Yeah, it's ridiculous. I know. That time doesn't exist. What? I know. Like, what even, what was that? I, I guess there was life five years ago, and this is what I was doing. Um, well, yeah, so we had just kind of met with um, some of these VR and MMO developers, like Improbable has Spatial OS, this technology that allows developers to create massive worlds in VR. And this developer, Diedrich Reed, was creating something using Spatial OS. Uh, He was creating this VR uh, MMO simulation, and it was supposed to be just like huge and have a ton of features and allow people to really live in a beautiful landscape, interact with people, eat, you know, around a campfire, stuff like that. Right. Um, He's between like a second life, but in Mm -hmm. VR, it sounds like. In VR, which is a feat. mm -hmm. (laughs) That's that's a big promise already yeah and certainly in 2016 so to give some context here right 2016 is when the oculus rift launched it's when the htc vive launched and people started to see like hey consumer vr is a thing right so i figured that's why you guys were also interested in talking with this dude absolutely this was the heyday of like okay is vr gonna take off what does a what does a world in vr look like what is a social setting what is an mmo what can we do here you know first person second life situation like that's kind of the vibe um, so yeah, this was this was a cool developer selling something that looked pretty cool, um, but it quickly uh-huh. took a turn. Um, just as we talked with him more, we realized he didn't really have a lot to back up the things he was saying. Um, it seemed like some of his promises were far too grand to actually be <laughs> viable, um, and we just we just you know a few red flags. So we kind of backed off from covering what he was doing because it didn't seem uh, didn't seem like he was actually going to be able to deliver what he was saying. Um, right, right. So, but from that, uh, we were all in this Discord server for MetaWorld, which is the world that Diedrich was selling. Um, and we got to watch as basically Diedrich just kind of abandoned that community and people just stuck around talking about how they felt scammed by him, how they had requested mm-hmm. they refunds. paid something, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. These people bought in. He was selling land, basically. He was selling like areas of this VR world, even though it was still an early access, there wasn't an actual product yet. Right. So this right. is why he was able to do this. Um, and these people, they say they never saw an actual metal world. They were actually going to be asked to build it themselves. This was Diedrich's plan was to have the community pay him and then have that same community actually do the work developing the game and then also hold jobs in that world to keep the blockchain, the cryptocurrency alive right. <laughs> in this <laughs> in this world. Um so it it fell apart pretty quickly. These people were really upset and they were sticking around in this server that Diedrich had abandoned. So Aaron and I over the years were just kind of watching like, wow, these people really like, yeah, he definitely just kind of left this server, this community. How, do we have a sense of like how much money he raised with that first community? We It's in the thousands. He had... 2,000 people who bought in, who bought like land titles, uh, at least that we know of. Um, but it's, it's hard to pin down, right? Exactly how much. Yeah, and yeah. if he did actually invest that money into cryptocurrency at the time, I mean, he could have actually made a pretty significant return. 
Um, they, that right, was the time right. when that could have happened. So, so yeah, either way, a lot of people asked for refunds and no one got one. Um, and then this year, a new Metal World Discord server popped up. And it's uh-huh. Diedrich Reed again selling the same world, but this time with NFTs attached to it. Like he's selling NFT <laughs> okay. land. Um, uh-huh. So we saw him pop up again. We saw him being active on Clubhouse and people joining the Discord. He started selling stuff, stuff again. And so, yeah, Aaron and I were just like, all right, it's time to to di- like figure out what's actually going on here. You know, is he selling something? Because if he's selling what he's promising, a 10,000 square mile VR world where you can, you know, interact with your friends, you can have a house, you can have a job, earn money on the blockchain. It's all it's all a beautiful idea. But I also think it's just impossible given all the all the tools that he has or doesn't have, honestly, for sure. It seems like there there are a lot of red flags here too because this is one dude. I'm not aware of like what he has produced in the past, but it's not like he has a whole development studio behind him. Did people like did did you guys talk to anybody who had purchased stuff and was just like why why do this? Why did you trust this guy that, that he would actually be able to accomplish anything? Right. So, I mean, I think people were excited about the project for the same reason we were in the beginning. It's a great idea. It I mean, and with this new technology that was coming out, like Spatial OS at the time, it was like, okay, is this possible? We were we were kind of asking ourselves, like, can can this be a thing? And I think these customers, these early investors, were asking the same thing. They assumed that this guy knew what he was doing, and and that's that's where it all comes from. But there there were people. There was one person that we talked with, uh, and this broke my heart. This person threw down hun- a few hundred dollars. Uh, into the first metal world. And they have disabilities. They, I mean, this was something that they were really looking forward to, to connect with people, to have a social life in VR. And they were pretty devastated when it came to light that metal world was not a real product, that they were never going to be able to actually go inside of it. And yeah, Diedrich spoke with these people often, and directly through Discord, um, just he likes to talk. Uh, I wish we could yeah. just play some of the <laughs> interviews with him. He really likes to talk. Yeah. It, it seems like, uh, I don't know, stereotype of a con man, I guess. And you guys talked about in your article when it came time to like show off uh, imagery and footage and whatnot. He basically just clipped, uh, took footage that already existed and you know, clipped out the credits from people to prove that something was actually happening. But what was his response to you? Like, as you guys start to dig into this, because it seems like he's not really basing it on anything. Did he ever have a good explanation for what was happening? So that was one of the most interesting parts of um, the most recent interview, because I've talked with him a few times over the years. But to really get this story done, we, Aaron and I both got on a call with him. I, I started the interview and basically, I got him to repeat the story, repeat all the claims. Um, he he talked about Metal World, what he was building. A lot of it still didn't add up. So I found a video. Um, Aaron and I had both already double checked these videos. He was stealing mm-hmm. assets from other people and then rebranding mm-hmm. them as his own. Um, these were videos that had been uploaded months or years before, and he was just putting the Metal World logo on them and saying this is Metal World when it absolutely was not. 
Um, so we already knew that was happening. So I just got him to say that, yes, one of these videos, like he said, yes, that's me actually building something in MetaWorld. And then I said, okay, well, it's actually not because this video was posted, you know, a year ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of bullshat in circles, uh-huh. you know, like it was just, <laughs> oh, though that's not actually MetaWorld. That's just what Unreal Engine can do. You know, all this stuff as if he as if he didn't understand what we were talking about in the first place. Um, And yeah, his main response is um, recently, he happens to be black. And this recent round of where he's selling Metal World, he's focusing on people of color and black communities, especially on Clubhouse. Um, He's using that as an in to kind of find a new audience, it feels like, for Metal World. And uh, so his response, actually, to a lot of my uh, just criticism or a lot of my questions, uh, it was just to say, oh, it's because I'm black and the VR uh, industry is racist. You know, it's okay when white, white boy Joe Schmo does it, but it's not okay when I do it. Um, and, you know, hey, we, we, we engaged with that. We were like, uh, that's not what's happening. We, we ask these questions of anyone. Um, but he didn't. He did not respond to that well, and he was using uh, he was using race as a kind of a a way to keep those questions at bay. It felt like that's a that's a damn shame. Also, because like yeah, we've always been fighting to see more people of color in the tech community, and yeah, it's a shame it's going like this. Uh, one thing I also noted in your piece is like there are these fake uh, fake quotes from. <laughs> in gadget reporters, wired reporters, and the quotes aren't good and also point to people who don't even like don't even work here, who have never worked here. So if you're going to pick a quote, at least try to put a name to somebody who may have worked here at one point. It just seems like everything here is built on a on a house of lies. Um so what is the big takeaway, Jess? Like I want people to read your piece for sure, but uh at this point have you heard anything from reed is it is anything being done you know to to protect the people that he's left behind basically yeah so the response has been i mean pretty great it seems like this has cut through some of the nonsense that he's been spewing and um like the discord servers there are still links to the article people are posting this article like hey this is this this game oh no like this is not great um <laughs> uh-huh. and so Diedrich is out. He's um, kind of disappeared from Discord once again. Um, he has been on Clubhouse a few times, uh, and it seems like people there are not buying what he's selling as much anymore, which is, I think, a good thing um, because he's he really doesn't have anything to sell, so it seems. Um, but he did hit me up directly right after the article went live, um, and he just said, you are on the wrong side of history, period. And, you know, that wasn't a refutation of any of the facts that we brought to the article. So uh, if he wants to engage with any of the facts that we've thrown down, happy to do it. But I do not think that's coming. So it also seems like this is a classic story of people putting money on, you know, a crowdfunding campaign. I know he ran some Indiegogos as well. Any big takeaways here for, you know, listeners and readers like we're going to see a lot of projects like like these, certainly around NFTs as well. Um there are all these new mechanisms for people to try to fleece money from uh, innocent consumers. Any big red flags here in terms of like what people should watch out for for future projects like this? Yeah, I mean, I think 
he is, so Diedrich is a really good example of a modern day snake oil salesman. Um, if it sounds too good to be true, just double check it. If it sounds like something you've never heard of before, take a look at that website. Does it look professional? Does it look like someone that can actually pull this off? Just do a little, do a little digging, do a little research. Uh-huh. If you get that weird feeling in your gut, walk away. Give it some time. If it's real, it'll still be there in a year and you can dive in there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's not a, uh, it's not going anywhere, but also like, yeah, folks do your homework. Um, personally, like on the podcast, we've been saying like, try to avoid crowdfunding campaigns in general, especially when it comes to things like hardware. Hardware is hard and it's very difficult for new people to just kind of jump in there and start building things. So yeah, seems like yet another example of that. Jess, thank you so much for chatting with us. Uh, where can people find you these days on the internet? Yeah, I am on Twitter at Jess Condit and on Instagram, Jess L. Condit. Two T's. Thank you so much.